one way to recognize the ego is this part of the psyche that's just resting in insufficiency, assuming subtle, incessant dissatisfaction. The ego comes from the foundational assumption of not enoughness, and then we're going to fill this through experiences, relationships, proving ourselves, activities. You have to go deep to look at that and say, am I willing to, to risk softening and ultimately dropping that? And when we rest in presence and we're dropping into a clearer seeing, this hierarchical overlay of the mind that's judging and assessing everything quiets and we actually learn to see with the heart welcome to voices of esalen i'm sam stern today i'm honored to have with us deborah eden tall spiritual activist author and sustainability educator who works to teach the integration of compassionate awareness into our everyday lives for seven years she trained as a buddhist monk at a silent zen monastery and has been teaching engaged meditation for over 20 years her latest book, Luminous Darkness, an engaged Buddhist approach to embracing the unknown, was released in September of 2022. In this episode, we'll explore her childhood and her journey as a Buddhist monk, then discuss her long-standing interest in shadow work, as well as the path by which she helps individuals release limiting beliefs. We'll also get into how Deborah Edenthal believes mindfulness and meditation are necessary tools to help us tap into our full potential. Of course, we'll also explore her work on post-patriarchal thought and practices, her insights on relational intelligence, and principally we'll discuss the major themes of her book, Luminous Darkness, focusing especially on her approach of endarkenment, which seeks to challenge traditional dualistic understandings of light and dark in spiritual practice. So with no further ado, let's embark on this thought-provoking and enlightening conversation with Deborah Edenthal. So, Deborah Eden Tull, thank you so much for joining us today on this beautiful morning for a Voices of Esalen recording. Sam, I'm so grateful to be here with you. It's the very last day of an extended stay here teaching at Esalen, and this feels like the perfect way to wrap up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what were you doing during your, during your time here? How did that look? Yeah, I led a New Year's retreat that's an annual experience I guide and then was resident teacher for a number of weeks, which included being here during the infamous and amazing storms. And then I led another workshop, which ended just a few days ago. Okay. What well, was this the workshop that you just completed? It was about my newest book, Luminous Darkness. And we focused on the themes of possibility, which the darkness opens up for us, and imagination both two aspects of the book I've just written. Yeah. Talk to me about some of your favorite things that you get from teaching in person. I am absolutely passionate about dropping into shared presence with a group of people, the field of we consciousness, which is something we could philosophize about, but the actual experience of a group merging, a group in union. And that's a phenomenally healing experience for people. And so to be able to guide that and to guide the kind of healing that happens, you know, many shamanic traditions really assert that healing happens in community and bring in, for instance, as many family members and community members as possible for someone's individual healing. And when we're in these kind of group spaces together, really dropped into presence, that field emerges. I want to hear about your background because you just brought up, you know, shamanism and I'm realizing that your background is sort of like very varied and you have a lot of influences from different places, a lot of different interests. 
when we spoke about a week ago, just getting to know one another, we started off, you just told me a bit about your background and your life. And I think that would be great to ground the discussion to bring that here. Absolutely. So I grew up in the city of Los Angeles to hippie parents. My parents were artists and activists. And I talk about in my new book how even though I had really liberal, open-minded parents, I was aware of sort of a culture of sunshining around us in LA. And as someone who, as I'll describe in a minute, went through a pretty complex um, series of losses and just real life experiences growing up, I was aware of, oh, this sort of paradigm of sunshining tries to encourage us to always keep things light and avoid what's real or darker and perhaps to keep things surface when there's deeper undercurrents in the heart that need to be presenced and maybe keep things superficial and you know that's not the whole of my LA experience but I was aware of that culture and from growing up in LA when I was done with high school and I would say I was a self-righteous environmentalist, 18 years old, was ready to just find solutions to a more overconsumptive culture. So I moved across the country and began at the same time a, a daily meditation practice at the same time as learning to grow my own food. I had gardened with my parents growing up, but really learning the art of organic farming and gardening. And my college supported me in an individual study on intentional communities and really wanting to find like solutions to how can humans live in more harmony with each other, with ourselves and with the planet. And so I was blessed with this opportunity to travel around the world studying communities and to experience some really neat places. And at the same time, I just became kind of aware that all of this possibility that nature points to for us, ways it's so easy to live in harmony with nature, the human ego keeps getting in the way. <laughs> so what was, how did that manifest? You know, um, being involved in both people interested in community and also people who saw themselves as change agents and activists, I just kept seeing burnout and finger pointing and othering and drama. I'll, I'll use that word, human dramas that occur when we forget to be really, really aware of our egos and to open to more collaborative, fresh ways of being together. So there was a point, I was 26 years old, and I was also equally aware of just some unhealed grief uh, within me. I had lost my dad when I was 11, and he was a really, really, my first spiritual teacher and also the deepest listener in my life. Like he really informed my whole spiritual practice. What was your father's spirituality? You know, he was a Christian contemplative, but he was super open-minded. What is a contemplative? It means that he was not so much um, teaching the Christian religion as the contemplative internal practices of inquiry and what it means to truly live uh, a life committed to kindness and service. Uh, you know, these are golden qualities and they bring one a lot of joy. So he was really a joyful human. And he read to us from Krishnamurti and Lao Tzu and Buddha and all kinds of different teachers, just kind of saying, this is going to be important in your life, your spiritual path. So I'll show you some doorways you choose. Wow. And that was a cool thing for a parent to do. Yeah. Yeah. 
When he passed, was it sudden or was there a time to know that he was going to pass? Thanks for asking that. You know, he found out one day out of the blue that he had one month left to live and he actually had had a misdiagnosed skin cancer a year before and then suddenly it was too late. So it was a wild ride and it took him about three months. But what that allowed was also as a young person who's having your first experience of the avalanche of impermanence and the intensity of everything that makes us feel safe as a family is about to dissolve, it gave us a chance to watch someone with a practice bring his life to a close in grace, like in gratitude. It was amazing. I mean, he held gatherings. I remember it was December, uh, gathering people in our home around the fire to process his death. That was amazing to watch. So it was, it was really special at the same time as tragic, but there was still a big hole when he left and that sunshining piece I mentioned earlier came up strong because no one, even well-intentioned adults, no one knew how to deal with a teenager carrying grief, you know? And of course you didn't know how to deal with it yourself. And I didn't know how to deal with it myself. Do you remember any of the strategies that you might have employed as a, as a teen to, to deal with uh, the weight of grief? Very well. One thing was I learned to wear a smile on all the time, all the time. I think my mouth maybe even hurt from wearing this smile because I knew it was what people wanted. And um, they want to know you're getting through it fast, you know, rather than what I now value is like the natural organic time that a um, process which is so rich for us like grief the other side of the uh, coin of love takes and so that's one thing I, I put on a bit of a mask um, yeah and I also found certain ways to cope for a number of years there was an eating disorder that evolved and you know it just makes sense I look back at that younger self and say good for you for finding ways to cope and I'm so glad that you found a deeper wisdom within to be free from that mm -hmm. when you were ready. This is so a lot of the your book, Luminous Darkness, you're challenging these traditional dualistic understandings of light and dark. Yes. I'd love to in spiritual practice and in sort of everyday practice yeah. which are which are married. I'd love to hear about kind of the first seeds of this. Mm -hmm. the, when did you have a breakthrough? At what point in your life where you felt like you wanted to recognize the endarkenment? Thank you. Um I would say Perhaps it's been a, a long-term thread because maybe like you and other people listening, we can all touch on those childhood experiences, those true spiritual friendships we seeked out, those experiences in nature um, or with the dream and invisible realm that were just, it was so clear, the power of the, the absolute, the place where the whole of us is welcome and celebrated and where there is no duality, but duality is the building block of human suffering. So something drew me to the path of Buddhism <laughs> at a young age. Um, and when I was 26, and back to what we were touching on earlier, just kind of, okay, I've seen a lot of human ego and I've seen grief, so uh, let's have something more. I uh, shaved my head and gave away my belongings and moved to a silent Zen Buddhist monastery for the next seven and a half years. One story that touches this is when I got to the monastery, maybe first expecting like, all right, I'm going to drop into peace. I'm really committed to my practice. Instead, I met this 
sort of fiery, intense anger inside that I had never really come into contact with. I think the smile that I had learned to wear <laughs> was in part <laughs> protecting this. And I remember at first feeling like, oh no, I'm bringing something really dark to the monastery. This isn't what I was going for <laughs> in Zen. What's wrong with me? You know, so many of us have been taught that anger is an unwanted emotion and in fact, a dark, bad emotion. And so I sat down with my teacher to, in one of our interviews and just said, I'm so sorry. I feel so bad about bringing this darkness. And she said, with complete compassionate neutrality and ease, like, have you ever really gotten to know this angry one? Um, I called her Electra because she was electric with anger. Have you ever spent time with her? Have you ever befriended her? Have you ever thought about totally dropping your judgment and finding out what she's actually all about? Spend time with her, like dig in the garden with her, go on walks with her, get to know her. And it was so freeing to be invited to just totally befriend this shadow. And it rocked because in befriending Electra, I became in touch with and in peace with so much more vibrant aliveness and courage and um, passion and so many things that I value deeply about my being today. You with me? Yes. Oh my God. Great answer. You know, and as you speak, I can't help but um, think about the connection between the work of internal family systems, which is a system that was developed by Richard Schwartz. Uh, I've interviewed him on the show before, and it's so deeply about getting to know these parts that we sequester away because they're unacceptable to us or they're... Got it. What I'm pointing to completely is in alignment with that work. Yeah. Because... The difference between going through life uh, feeling alone and feeling in judgment of our internal systems versus really bringing compassionate presence and friendship to every single aspect of us, that's the invitation. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to ask you, what was some of, when when it was really wonderful for you to be at the Zen monastery, what were some of the things that you treasured the most? Mm, mm, So many things. Um, One is that While some people feel a fear of entering silence for an extended period of time, silence is golden. And silence is the divine backdrop of every moment, similar to how I define darkness as the backdrop to every moment. Darkness as the field from which form arises, from which insight, creativity, possibility arises. So to get to spend intimate time in silence and in the wilderness where For me, so much of what I wanted was for the human made-up world to be stripped away, and that includes the human conditioning I had internalized, the stuff that we get from society, media, religion. What, What could be an example of some of that human conditioning that you'd internalized? Everything from the notion that productivity is more valuable than restoration so that a lot of people in today's world they're just bringing mental effort to everything kind of a young approach to life and there's a fixation on getting things done like I think there's a quiet hidden belief if most people investigated their mind they would notice there's something I've got to do being a very strong guiding force and this is not to detract from the fact that we're all engaged creative people But we actually don't have to do from that doing place. We can rest in silence, in presence with life, where life does through us in a way. It's a really different experience. And so work, for instance, 
became a working meditation instead of work as me trying to prove myself through what I'm doing, right? There's so much conditioning I could point to. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And what about during your time at the Zen monastery when it felt like it was less satisfying than other times? What were things that stood out to you that you found untenable? Well, the spiritual path can be grueling at times. It's a path of love and a path of our minds and hearts being blown open, sometimes through being with levels of discomfort that are really hard to be with. So there were numerous times when I felt sort of up against the wall. And remember there being a feeling of like, has my teacher set up the exact circumstances yet again for me to face my demons, for me to face the ego I'm not yet ready to let go of. And something about the wisdom of no escape. I was just talking with someone here at Emil Esselin. There's so many ways in today's world for people to escape when they're up against the wall. And there's also such a romanticizing actually of escape, people chasing experiences. I talk about chasing the light sometimes. Instead of learning how to actually be in those darker experiences, those unknown, those uncomfortable experiences, both to develop our discomfort resiliency, which is one of the superpowers of the human heart, but also to recognize, again, I'll use this phrase, the wisdom of no escape, that when we stay with something, it's when we stay in compassionate presence with the energies moving through us, with um, a difficult part of our being who we're meeting, that we get to allow it to be met with what, what I will call divine love. And we just don't give ourselves that experience when instead I could pop a pill, drink an energy drink, turn to substances for everything. We've come pretty far in developing endless ways to escape. Yeah. You mentioned just offhandedly during this time at the monastery that that maybe your teacher had set up something for you to struggle with this ego that you weren't quite ready to let go of. I was wondering, I wanted to hear a little bit more about that or like a, what were you struggling with in terms of egoic issues? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a, a lot of things I could mention. So let me just pause and look within. One of the things that almost everyone that I was training with and almost everyone I've guided in as a teacher over many decades now of teaching struggles with as an ego issue is some quiet internal assumption of not enoughness or of needing to prove my worth again through what I do or others approval whatever it is and if we just pause and look at the nature of ego for a minute that one way to recognize the ego is this part of the psyche that's just resting in insufficiency assuming absolute not enoughness like I think I shared with you the other day one of the Buddhist definitions of suffering is subtle incessant dissatisfaction so the ego comes from the foundational assumption of not enoughness and then we're going to fill this through experiences relationships proving ourselves activities and practice invites us to really you have to go deep to look at that and say am I willing to to risk softening and ultimately dropping that so I can recognize that essence or we so much language we could use true nature uh, sometimes in Zen we say no self because it's just when we stop filling the self 
is absolutely perfect as is. It carries an innate goodness that doesn't have to be super shiny and uh, collect attention everywhere, though it we can too, but that it's just enough. Well, we're we're just definitely beautiful. duped by the ego to believe that, <laughs> that when we do experience the ego happiness, which it does happen, there are, people do win awards, that it, it will be permanent, right. it, it will be fulfilling, right. and that it will pervade all the rest of our years, when in fact it's, it's really evanescent. It comes and then just passes, and then the ego's on to the next thing. And so, I mean, I remember even arriving to the monastery, you know, that point in my 20s where I had a, enough credentials that I had created to make myself feel um, uh, something, whether it had was... Had you already written your book by then? I hadn't written any books, but um, just kind of a, I'm an artist, I'm a dancer, I'm a permaculture, that, that kind of thing. And, you know, what's... And, and not one of those things. It was like, okay... We're actually living and training here at a place where no one even knows your last name. No one knows a thing about what you've done before. And that's not what's celebrated. But your essence, the way of being you bring to chopping carrots or listening to someone or being part of community, mm -hmm. that's celebrated. It's refreshing. And then you do suggest in your book that there are or there can be systems of hierarchy and patriarchy within Buddhism. So I'm wondering if that led to any decision to leave after seven and a half years. Thank you. Um, it's interesting because I didn't expect for my immersion in Buddhism and my spiritual path to uncover as much collective conditioning as it did, but it really made me someone who, as a teacher, passionately merges the personal path of awakening with our collective awakening because as we're shedding conditioning there is so much collective conditioning that we're shedding for and with one another and we've all been informed human consciousness has been informed by patriarchy and colonialism capitalism a profound disconnect with the natural world makes a lot of people walk around with their head center as their center of gravity i became aware the monastery was an extraordinary training place and every spiritual community has light and shadow. So one of the shadows was kind of an unconscious hierarchical structure. When we look at Buddhism, we can note that most of the teachings have been passed down through, because of patriarchy, male monasticism. And yet here we are today, majority of people practicing as lay people, family members, parents, and it's, we need a different bridge. So I got to see the, the harm caused firsthand, both internally and within my community, by this sort of invisible hierarchy, so that, visible and invisible, so that while we were investigating all other conditioning, we weren't investigating that, like, oh, don't touch the hierarchy. I write a lot in Luminous Darkness because I'm sort of uncovering the hierarchy of light seen as higher than dark and how humans hold on so tightly to hierarchical perception, good, bad, higher, lower, superior, inferior, and the shit it causes for us, right? Like both internally, an othering of oneself, not recognizing the rightness of being of oneself through that kind of judgment to profound othering in the social and relational field, to racism, xenophobia, all of it. And when we rest in presence and we're dropping into a clearer seeing, this 
hierarchical overlay of the mind that's judging and assessing everything quiets. And we actually learn to see with the heart, oh, I'm able to recognize from a compassionate welcome what is. I'm not, I don't have to expend my life force. And it's depleting. It's exhausting. Judging and measuring everything and sorting life into these categories. So actually one of the ways that I point to some of the symbolism between light and dark is that think about just with our eyes open and especially in an artificially lit world today with so much focus on getting to the light and we're overlighting planet earth right now as well in quite an intense way. There is more of a focus on this um, discriminating mind this judging, categorizing mind, and less invitation for people to drop into a seeing with the heart, seeing in the dark. And I share in the first chapter of the book, the metaphor, because I live in the mountains of Western North Carolina, of just when we're walking through the woods, like thick, dark forest, and there isn't a brightly lit path or signs, rational mind telling us where to go, we truly drop into a kind of tactile listening with our bodies, our intuition, our other senses open up in the dark. Mm. You with me? Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we just need more of that. What if I told you that your morning coffee could deliver powerful immune support or that you could improve your gut health, reduce inflammation with a delicious daily gummy? Well, it's all true, all in the form of functional mushrooms, sometimes referred to as adaptogens by smart people that help your body restore, defend and perform. Welcome to Earth and Star. This is my new favorite line of super premium adaptogen infused goodies. They've got organic ground coffee, rich dark roast, hazelnut, even decaf, all boosted with a powerful dose of adaptogen extracts to give you the most delicious morning brew with zero crash or jitters. It's true, I tried it, and it's actually awesome coffee, and I'm a coffee snob. Also, Earth and Star has organic dark chocolate, 72% cacao with flavors like mint. No refined sugars here. I also tried these ones out. Quite good, too. And no, Earth and Star products do not taste like mushrooms. They will legit give you back your money if you taste even the slightest hint of shroominess. So that's good. They've also got tinctures. I'm quite in love with my everything drops, which contain lion's mane, reishi, chaga, cordyceps, and turkey tail. Yeah, they've got everything. So check them out earthandstar.com follow on social at earthandstarco and please use the code VOE for 15% off your first order what other tactics do you bring that folks who are interested in encouraging this you know recognition of their own and darkenment can bring to their spiritual practice it seems like you're talking about getting in touch with nature and embodying what else is there? Yeah, so first I'll just repeat back what you just shared. Really encouraging a dropping down into our bodies, our earth bodies, our bodies as a wise center for natural intelligence and for relational intelligence. So again, listening with our whole bodies and recognizing in addition to through this hierarchical perception, an othering internally and of humans there's also an othering of nature that goes on. And when we recognize, as Esselin, so many things that happen here point people to partnership with nature and acknowledging that anthropocentrism also is quite loud in human consciousness. But if we really drop into and let our spiritual practices be about including uh, as a teacher, 
the trees we can listen to, the bees, all the forms of consciousness that want to co-create with us. Given the problems we're facing today and the level of global uncertainty, the human mind and the rational mind, it ain't going to solve it. And that's not the place we need to be looking. So dropping into more of a listening to life, I talk about it in the book as being willing to listen to the cosmos instead of listening to our conditioned mind as God. And there's so many paths that point to this. Mine happens to be home base in Buddhism and also shamanism. But this is part of the direction. Another piece I would name is fierce compassion. So we all need both gentle and fierce compassion. But when we're looking at the energy required to embrace our shadows and to know the strength of the love that I think is our true nature, that I experience as our true nature, it's inclusive to everything. It doesn't include this and leave this out. It has the willingness to turn towards a difficult emotion, to turn towards with kindness a shadow. And then we find out that our shadows are our greatest allies. They've been hidden in our judgment towards them. And what else is hidden in our judgment, right? All judgment is related to fear. I've always noticed and have encouraged my students to look at the connection between when judgment arises, what's the fear going on? Because judgment is kind of a shield you can put up in the face of fear. So it's fascinating. Yeah, it is. It, it just comes to mind as I'm listening to you talk about this, how many people in the world are engaged in practices like xenophobia and racism. And there's this been this whole turn against democracy and towards autocracy or towards the that kind of rulers. How can you influence people who wouldn't necessarily want to be your student but they are comprised something like 50% of the world where they're so enthrall of the, the will to power. Well, there's a couple of things I'll say about that. And one, it's just interesting. I've been playing with um, how much I actually enjoy the words mentor and mentee instead of teacher-student because of this hierarchical stuff. Because humans, face it, we are so confused regarding power. <laughs> and so I write a lot in the book about shared power and how we move into that instead of power over to this power with. But when I um, reflect on your question, I'm aware that uh, number one, my husband and I moved from Ojai to the South, to North Carolina about five years ago. And while it's been an interesting ride, a beautiful ride, it's also really opened up neat opportunities to connect with people far beyond the liberal bubble we were living in. And just to recognize the power of presence when someone shows up anyone in shared presence and again dropping our assumptions and the ways we might judge oh this person fits in this category <laughs> humans are generally open to conversations uh, of the heart even those who don't appear to be so it can be an art to help to disarm people a little bit and it's not going to work if you have an agenda to get someone to buy your kool-aid or your perspective but face it, part of what we need in healing the fabric of human relationship is more space to be in presence with those who don't share our ideas, right? How about the technique of sharing your own darkness, sharing something that you felt was you just weren't able to share with the world and then through your own practice, either having included it in your book or including it in your teachings, do you find that that's a tactic that can help people sort of bring to light their own darkness? Completely. Absolutely. I love that you brought that in. And even in, for instance, the workshop I just taught, so much of the beauty is in people 
having these moments where they recognize, oh, my conditioned mind had been telling me I was alone and solo in this difficult experience, but every human being in this room shares it. And right now we're dropped into complete heart space together about it and something's been healed. And it just starts to take down the facade and to take down some of the defenses so people can, again, welcome both the light and the dark within ourselves. Yeah, I think that's something that's that's really special that can happen at Esalen with the group work that, that happens here and the whether the work scholar programs that are, have like 30 people in a room or whether you have like a smaller gestalt offering where you have six yes. people in the room. But the, the yeah. stuff that I've witnessed and always like when I'm a person who's not speaking but just supporting, I'm always like more, more, give me more, like go, go darker, go, go crazier. Cause I, you know, that's just making me love you more. You got it. It's so freeing. It's so freeing. And it's fun when I first, uh, two stories I'll share. And one is when I first met my husband, we sat down to connect and get to know one another. There was a conversation. <laughs> he was saying something like, you know, I'm really getting kind of tired of of the dating world. It feels like you get to know someone, they're kind of holding you on a little bit of a pedestal maybe, that pedestal of this is new, and then they learn some things or get tired of certain qualities. And I was just like, well, I'd love to know, like what are those qualities and those things in yourself that maybe they find out about, you know? Yeah. And he listed every single one of them. Really? He just gave me, here it is. What beautiful confidence. I totally, totally fell in love with him right then. (laughs) all I need you know so there's the trick is to just own what we have yeah 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 and I'll share just a short story because you had asked earlier about how or why did I leave the monastery and actually when I was living at the monastery in the midst of this extraordinary experience I got bit by a tick and didn't know Mm. it so I contracted Lyme and any listeners who have either had chronic illness or watched a loved one go through it, it's a wild ride. And so sometimes I would have the energy I was used to and sometimes absolutely not and was in a body I didn't even recognize as it experienced it. And so it's it was a complete portal to the unknown in an even bigger way. And it was actually my greatest spiritual teacher because it invited me to really, really notice the fears I was still holding around like uh, this conditioning we're supposed to abide by. We're lovable when we have good energy, high energy, when we can be a contribution through what we do, when we, and I sometimes felt like, um, am I even going to make it through this illness? Like I have such little energy, but in being present with it and staying with that all, I remember a moment when I just, Well, what happened was my teacher and I decided I would go to LA for a few months where my family was to get some medical attention. And I was told at the beginning of this treatment, you're going to have to just lie down and be horizontal for a while and it might get worse before it gets better. And all these fears arose in my psyche and I just stayed as fully present with it as I could and a very, very solid, uh, all-knowing and gentle voice arose from within that just said, uh, your presence is your greatest contribution. Nothing that you do, no performing, no meeting standards matters at all. Mm. Your presence is where it's at. And something was just healed right then and there. Wow. Because the other stuff dropped away, you know? 
And so in that same period is when I was really growing as a, a leader and a teacher and being asked to go. So that experience of being at your, your weakest energetically while guiding a lot of groups and doing a lot of teaching, but it was brilliant because what it allowed was I could, I could still see some of the conditioning saying um, you should be showing up looking a certain way or feeling strong. And instead you're showing up, I learned to show up naked. And I learned to show up totally bearing my heart and simply recognizing the power Mm. of presence, Mm. regardless of how my energy was. And it was palpable how much it touched people and gave people permission to drop the conditioned standards they were holding and just be human. We're really powerful just as humans. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. So it was very freeing. Yeah. One thing that I find interesting about your story is that you sort of have managed to meet the condition standards of the society nonetheless in that you've written four books, you have a thriving practice as a teacher, you have sort of like things as simple as a robust website. So my question is sort of like, where did the books come from if they're not coming from this sense of I need to, I need to meet this, like where, yeah. This is a great question because this is a question so many people do struggle with. Um, Number one, there can be a duality that says, if I let go of striving, am I not just going to end up a sloth on the couch on the other side of the duality with no motivation doing nothing? Yeah, if I let go of (laughs) self-castigation, will anything happen at all? Exactly, exactly. And that's a complete farce. The truth is, when we let go of this stuff, we're allowing ourselves to empty of conditioning that's been weighing us down, of baggage that's been weighing us down. We've been getting in our own way through that striving. And instead, I always love the Zen teaching of beginner's mind, just letting ourselves be totally open, um, beginner's mind like a child. And I love the shamanic teaching of hollow bone, pointing to the strength in totally emptying so you can be receptive. When we do that, life moves through us in more powerful ways than our ego could go. And our essence is free to express itself rather than our egos trying to force our essence to prove themselves. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And each and every one of us has a completely unique essence which no one else carries. So that's sort of the the scam of our society, which capitalism has done uh, a lot with, (laughs) Um, that when we instead let ourselves empty and actually stay in touch with what is my essence here to express, then there's, sure, four books. I'm, I'm just for the record, have been working on number four here at Esalen. And none of them were written through a sense of I need to do this as an accomplishment or to make something of myself. They were, I would say, gifts from my heart to people I felt they would serve. And they were also things that I did in partnership with nature, a sense of life using me <laughs> to write these. And they were joyful processes. Yeah. So we actually have to get in out of our own way to let the magnificence of our essence come through and dropping striving is a good way to do that. (laughs) Yeah. In in your book, you mentioned that wisdom traditions across the globe and throughout history have recognized the teacher of darkness as an instigator of spiritual growth. And I want to ask you just about what it is like to embody the being a teacher of darkness and have you been embraced by the cultures in which you work? 
Yes. Thank you. So first, in the book, I'm initially inviting people to just question and be curious about their current associations with darkness. Can we look deeper than the Merriam-Webster dictionary that said darkness is the absence of light? (laughs) And can we see all the ways that definition has impacted us, like darkness is bad, when darkness is an equal part of nature and human consciousness to light? And then from there, can we go deeper to what actually is the luminous darkness? What is the divine teacher and ally of darkness that we're not going to find if we're constantly pushing it away? And that's what we can look across history. We can see um, shamanic cultures. We can see the Shinto, the Lakota Sioux, the Dagara tribe in Africa. I could go on and on. Tibetan Dogen tradition still has darkness retreats that people practice today as an instigator of spiritual growth. And when I was learning about all these different cultures, I was recognizing that darkness really has been my greatest teacher. And just to define for a moment, think of darkness in nature as the yin, receptive, restorative aspect of nature. We love light, but we need both. Light is more the yang, expressive, active, but the yin, receptive, restorative, and that which invites us to the internal rather than external, that which invites us into more relational forms of knowing than the rational mind or lamp of knowledge, Throughout history, there have been so many spiritual traditions which have simply prioritized spending time under the night sky. Human beings, for most of our history, existed with a lot of our time spent (laughs) in pure darkness. We didn't know how to make fire for a long time. We didn't have electricity until really recently. So it's funny that we are so disconnected now from darkness. And there are many ways in which it's been my path. But one thing I'll say is just going back to something I shared earlier about being a kid who was really sensitive and empathetic, but diminished that for my intellect, you know, through meditation, um, receptivity has revealed itself the stillness, um, the internal spacious darkness has revealed itself to be a a seed of authentic power. And that's a seed of shared power that doesn't exclude, but includes, that truly welcomes what is. It's an expression of love. So I've been so touched to be asked by life to write this book. I actually received the invitation to write this book when I was leading a retreat at Esalen. I was standing under the night sky for an extended period of time in a meditation, uh, and I had a mystical experience that turned me a bit upside down for at least a few weeks, but really the next couple years. Mind if I ask for <laughs> just a... It's a resting under the night sky and really surrendering in open awareness to the experience of the night. And I had a palpable direct experience of two stars uh, connecting with me in that night and informing me through metaphor, through words, through image, through sensation of the teacher of darkness being something humanity needs more of in this time. And so when I say being turned upside down, I mean that it was a wild experience. I've definitely had 
I recognize mystical experience as a vital part of the spiritual path, and I encourage people not to fetishize it, but always to welcome it. But I got turned upside down in terms of I entered sort of an incubation over the next few weeks of just continuing to receive these messages. And that was the call to write. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> way cooler than being ego-driven. <laughs> just a little cooler than being ego-driven. Yeah. 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 I, I want to um, ask you kind of a selfish question. Sure. I'm, uh, I lost my mother on, in January, um, January 4th. And now I'm, you know, in the grieving process. And I, I do find that there is some amount of sun shining within the grieving process just inherently in that you don't want to speak ill about the, the dead. And you want to, a way, I think, to combat the, the really hard and depressing feelings of grief is to speak so kindly, you know, about them almost until we create a mythical proto-honest, mm. proto compassionate image of our a loved one but you know my mom and I our relationship wasn't perfect mm -hmm. you know I loved mm -hmm. so many things about her and there were some things that I wanted more of mm -hmm. I deeply wanted and, I, and being too young to be able to articulate this but there was a closeness that I wanted more of that I don't think that I got until I was an adult and she was more able to meet me and I was of the emotional maturity to extend myself uh, in, in a way that was different than when I was a kid when I just wanted everything on my own terms. Mm -hmm. But thinking about this concept of endarkenment and mourning uh, a person in a really authentic and really um, true way is what I'm wanting right now and I'm wondering if you have any sort of advice for me on this current path. Yeah, thank you for presencing that. And I want to first just express my deep, deep compassion uh, for your loss and recognize how recent it was. Um, and, and just acknowledge that I know from experience, and maybe many of the listeners do, just how raw and tender and unique that period of time can be. And so I'll just say our hearts are with you because I'm sure many of the listeners are feeling touched by you bringing this up. And a couple of things arise for me. And one is um, grief is a wild process. And it's a process that maybe first needs to take you where you are right now, like noticing some of the a little bit of wanting to sunshine while you also grieve, and then letting that emerge into the next step, which is, Maybe I even want to engage in some conscious, rit conscious rituals for acknowledging the shadow and the light in our relationship. Because again, we're saying shadow's not bad, light's not good, both simply are. <laughs> They're part of this whole human experience. So can I, through a ritual of forgiveness, and by the way, I um, guide a lot of conscious grief rituals and also forgiveness practices, so I'd be happy to share some with you. But a ritual in which something we did in the last workshop as people were doing some reflection on just the whole past year of their life and the gifts and the losses and challenges. And so a forgiveness practice where, for instance, you're given in sacred space all the room you need to name every single resentment, if I can use that word, large and small to honor it, to name it. You're honoring the part of you who holds those. It's not the whole of you. 
and to really let them be acknowledged bringing something into consciousness from the subconscious is the first step of healing i think and letting that be an honoring of your mom too and your relationship uh, this love is strong enough that i'm willing to name and acknowledge the lights and the shadows and to then let that seed a, a letting go or integration process you with me yeah yeah. Yeah. And one thing I think is so interesting is, you know, I, I know you're here at Esalen, so you have a conscious circle and community and an amazing family. But um, it's important for people to have those spaces where they can just bring it to a real radical honesty mm. where everything's welcome. Because meanwhile, in our world, as compared to, for instance, we might travel to India and find a culture that really, really welcomes death and the death process in a different way here in the dominant paradigm here it's just not understood or welcome we're pushing it away in so many ways we don't acknowledge the harm that's causing <laughs> right i want to ask you before we wrap this interview up what is it like teaching the concepts in your book luminous darkness at a place like eslin that's predicated around the human potential movement in what ways does the work that you do dovetail nicely with the uh, a concept of the empowerment of the, the human animal? Thank you. Thank you. I think two things that I'll name. One is um, darkness offers a radical path to wholeness because it's been pushed away for so long. And I just want to pause and invite people to recognize that Throughout history, there have been so many wisdom traditions that celebrated darkness and celebrated relational forms of knowing and celebrated our bodies and earth connection as pathway to the divine. And there was a period of time, um, we can recognize these as the burning times, when millions of people were killed because of their quote-unquote dark practices, practices that were related to the body and earth connection and other forms of knowing. And there's still an imprint in the human psyche, I think, from this. Of course, the message also became you need to be going through the church and a male authority in the church, not your body and earth connection to connect with the divine. So something to consider. But certainly it offers a, a path to wholeness and to um, note that I think we're, we're up for this that so much of the uncertainty we're facing as a collective, if we're lucky, if our eyes are open, can remind us of our hunger for wholeness, not for continuing a paradigm that leaves one half of nature and consciousness out, yeah? And another thing I would say is that it's really a teacher in remembering our natural capacity of seeing with the heart and certain wisdom traditions point to this as learning to see in the dark but strengthening our inner vision and softening this externally focused discriminating mind judgmental ego-based i won't get too into it but we're a pretty social media focused screen focused society now so that takes it to a new dimension instead remembering our natural potential of clear seeing with the heart that our bodies are instruments for relational intelligence which are profound but we can't be up in our heads if we're going to remember that yeah, yeah. 
Deborah Edenthal, thank you so much for this conversation today. I'd love to end this by asking you, how can people find your book, Luminous Darkness, and know about where you'll be teaching, when you'll be teaching, and, and what you're up to in the world? Thank you, Sam. Um, people can find me at my website, DebraEdenthal.com, and I offer all kinds of retreats, both residential and also uh, remote experiences. And one of the greatest compliments that I get again and again is that the Zoom experiences I offer don't feel a thing like Zoom, and I'm proud of that. <laughs> so when we drop into shared presence, we can feel it uh, through the screen. And my book is available at the usual places like Amazon and I hope your local bookstore. There will be more offerings here at Esalen, so I hope some of you will join me here. Also, just a shout out that for those of you who read Luminous Darkness and find yourself uh, deeply touched, feel free to, to write a short review. I found that that's really useful for a new book. Yeah. And, you know, I am on social media. I've taken it on with this book as a sort of conscious practice of lightness and creativity. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of conscious boundaries up around it, but you can find me there. Uh, I decided well. to get a little bit up on social media too recently. And I, I'd say, I have to spend only 30 seconds per post. It has, it has to be done really like a burst. I haven't gotten to 30 seconds, but I'm about two minutes. Uh -huh. So it's on, Sam. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> and um, I run a nonprofit called Mindful Living Revolution. So you can learn more about that through my website. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sam. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. If you enjoyed the show, please hit that subscribe button, or even better, share it with a friend. Until next time, be well.